Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, and this is Maggie, and on this episode, we are doing the 53rd Best Picture winner, Ordinary People. Ordinary People is a 1980s American family drama, so we have officially left the 70s and are now in the 80s. But the hair has not. <laughs> no, this is a fun one fashion-wise because it kind of it's showing the transition from the, the what we think of as like classic 70s fashion and then hints of what will become quote-unquote classic <laughs> 80s fashion. It is about the trials and tribulations of an upper-middle-class family right at the top big trigger warning for suicide. Yeah, the entire film is pretty much centered around the suicide of one of the family members. So the attempted. Uh, attempted. Yeah. Yes, you're right. So um, yeah, just be cognizant. Yep. Big trigger warning. This was the directorial debut for Robert Redford, who we on the podcast absolutely love. We talked about his movie, The Sting, and we also covered Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm -hmm. um, both really good episodes. Highly recommend you listen to them and great movies. Highly recommend you watch them. The screenplay is by Alvin Sargent and was based on a 1976 novel of the same name. It stars Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, and is the debut film for Timothy Hutton, all of whom are absolutely fantastic in this. I did not realize that it was Timothy Hutton's debut. And the fact that to get way ahead of myself, he won an Academy Award for his debut role is such a comment on how well he did. Yes. I love when that happens. It's so good. And yeah, the, there wasn't a ton of background I have on this one. The um, other thing is that it was very well received at, at the time that it came out. There, it was just kind of widely acclaimed. Fun fact about just the Oscars in general that year. So the lack of recognition for Christopher Tucker's work on The Elephant Man, uh, he did all of the makeup on that movie, which if you've seen it, it's a very makeup intensive movie. Mm -hmm. But the lack of formal recognition for that that was available at the time spurred on the creation of the best makeup category for the next year. Ooh, exciting. So we get to actually see some of that soon. Yeah. Um, so awards and nominations for this. Robert Redford won for Best Director. Again, directorial debut. I agree with it. Mary Tyler Moore was nominated for Best Actress, but did not win. Uh, Judd Hirsch was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but did not win because Timothy Hutton, as Ian mentioned, won Best Supporting Actor. Although I would kind of argue that Hutton's character is the main character of this. I'd agree. When I saw how all of the actors were billed, I totally understand why they would have put a debut role at the bottom of the list. But for all intents and purposes, he is the main character for me. Yeah, I agree. So I kind of would have put him in the best actor category, personally. Um, and then Alvin Sargent won for best screenplay. Oh, Donald Sutherland didn't get a nod? He was not even nominated, which in retrospect, I was reading a lot of people are like, that is one of the biggest Oscar snubs of all time. And I would agree. He, at the very least, deserved a nomination. Well, and he was good, but I would agree as well that of the three, four performances, he was the weakest, but also when you're talking about being the weakest out of an all-star cast. I, and out of <laughs> four really great performances. Like, right. It's still a really great performance. Other nominees for that year were The Coal Miner's Daughter, The Elephant Man, Raging Bull, and Tess. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those. No surprises there. <laughs> we'll start getting into the ones that you've seen soon. I'm excited. Alrighty, ready for watch notes. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, I hate Pachelbel's Canon. I know you do, but you know so... why you hate Pachelbel's Canon? As I was as I was watching this, I took a note and I was like, Ian's going to fucking hate Pachelbel's Canon. I love Pachelbel's Canon, but that's because I played a real instrument in high school. Oh my God. Um, I played the violin, whereas Ian played the viola. And um, Pachelbel's Canon for a violin is great. I just think it's overdone. But in this, okay, as much as I dislike the song itself, it's overdone because it's a beautiful piece of music. Ian. It, yes. I'm still going to call it overdone. But I liked it how they, they kind of used it here to introduce the like pastoral Lake Park, Illinois scene, which I will say, I know the synopsis says upper middle class, but these folks... They're upper class. They, they read as rich, like they yes. have maids apparently in the 1980s. Anyway, that's minor, minor gripes. Doesn't really matter. You're right. <laughs> um, but I do love the way... I like the opening with Pachelbel's canon... And I like the way they bring it back throughout the movie at different mm -hmm. points, usually to underscore some sort of like character revelation 
or emotional development. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they use it to close out the movie too. And I, I liked the way they did that. Yeah, I, I did. So again, I'll put, I'll put my dislike for the piece aside for the sake of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of that whole, whole long introduction of scenes, we do get a scene of Conrad in choir as kind of like the establishing he is here at school doing his thing. Well, Conrad wakes up. The choir was a dream. Because we start with it settling in on just kind of this beautiful, picturesque area. You have Pachelbel's Canon. You have the choir coming in to start singing Pachelbel's Canon, which is really nice transition. And then you have this very startling cut to mm-hmm. Conrad waking up, sweating, very clearly having had a nightmare, um, and very, very rattled by it. So it's this very jarring cut that's, I thought, very effective. Agreed. And this is a technique that they also use throughout the film repeatedly and in kind of varying ways that I really loved, There's especially when it come, came to like, yes, the flashbacks. Yeah, a lot of flashback and a decent amount of voiceover, but it works. It works really, really well here. They're very judicious about when they use it. Mm-hmm. So then, then we go to the theater and it's um, Beth and Calvin. Yes, at the theater, double dating, doing their thing, enjoying their theater, acting like their lives are fine. We get a really kind of sweet scene in the car where it's like, okay, they're very much in love and happy and doing their thing, which had I not read anything about this film, I would be completely unaware of what was about to come down the pipe. Because even the scenes afterwards where they see that Conrad is still awake and Calvin goes in and checks on him and is like, are you sleeping enough? are you doing okay? Like you get this sense that something is wrong, but they don't put it right in front of your face. So loved the the really gradual introduction and that subtlety to both the performance and the the actual storytelling through the intro. I a hundred percent agree with that. Um, I like that we're picking up our story after like the two very traumatic events that have happened. So the loss of Conrad's older brother and then Conrad's subsequent attempted suicide. We're starting after both of those events. Mm -hmm. So like you said, we would, at the beginning of the movie, if you hadn't read anything about it, you would know that like something's up with Conrad and you would think that everything's fine with his parents. And it really does take the the movie, I was going to say it takes it a while, but it's more of that it's taking its time. Mm-hmm. to set up what happened and to even give you the full story of what happened. Because this entire movie is about a family grieving and how people grieve in different ways. And none of those ways are necessarily wrong or right, but they're not always compatible. I'm so glad you put it that way. Cause I was literally going to come in with that same phrase of yes. compatibility. Yeah. And, and because you have these three people dealing with this, these very traumatic events in their lives, it of course takes them a while to open up about these events to themselves and to other characters. So I like that it takes the movie a while to open it up to the audience. Like we're kind Mm -hmm. of getting the story as they are ready to tell it to us. For sure. And that graduality, is that a word? Graduation? It is now. Hey, graduality, it's a new word. It definitely shows its face as you kind of move through the next morning and Conrad getting to school. So, Well, and I want to talk about the two parents really quick because mm -hmm. we established very early that these two parents have very different styles of how they're dealing with this, right? Beth is all about pretending everything is fine. Nothing has changed. Everything is fine. Calvin is the one who's like, he goes in to check on Conrad and he Mm -hmm. clearly like wants to talk. He's being overly optimistic about things. Like he is compensating in a different way. And I just, oh, the scenes of the three of them interacting and or not necessarily interacting directly to each other because Conrad and Beth don't really directly interact. And you're watching like the two parents talk about like the most inane thing at the breakfast table because it's like, Things are normal. Pretend that they're normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Beth blows up about Conrad not eating. Well, I say blows up. She's very calm and composed, but immediately puts the French toast that she made into the the disposer in the sink because Conrad doesn't want it, which her delivery and calmness in the moment is 
at such odds with the extremity of her actions. So like, I, again, that's why Mary Tyler Moore's performance was just so spectacular because she can, can really show that there's this emotional current going underneath, but have the stony optimistic mask on top. So I, Oh, so good. And looking back at that moment over like compared to what happens in the rest of the movie, it's such a commentary on Beth and Conrad's relationship because it's like, Beth's form of like Beth is not a huggy person. Beth does not like to talk about feelings. Her way of showing love was to make him his favorite breakfast. And because Conrad's dealing with other stuff and he doesn't see that that is her way of giving love in that moment, he, he like doesn't accept it, which is I think why Beth's reaction is like, okay, fine then I'm just going to put it down the drain. Like, no, he doesn't want it. That's fine. That's fine. Like I think (laughs) that is immediately setting up the fact that like, these two people can't communicate with each other. Like their, their ways of communicating and showing love and receiving love are very different. Yeah. And incompatible to use Mm -hmm. your word. So we get a little bit of this as Conrad goes to school, he's writing with some of his friends. We get some more of that really interesting hard cut technique that we kind of mentioned earlier where he, I think they're stopped at a train And there's this like hard flashback between this really kind of violent train passing scene and a pan of a graveyard. So this is, again, at that point in the movie, just hammering home that something is really, really wrong. (laughs) Something tragic happened. But it, it, again, is so interesting how that comes out of nowhere and just like jars you awake and keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat. So that I like how they kind of put you on that on edge state that Conrad is in with these for lack of a better way to put it, jump scares of sorts. Like, they're very mild jump scares. But they're almost jump scares. Well, their flashback is almost not an intense enough word. I I guess it's like a PTSD flashback is kind of what it is. But I think Timothy Hutton's performance, especially like him in the car with his friends, he's so good at like showing you Conrad's emotional isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's great. Couldn't agree more. The The scenes in the school to me after that were really more showing us more characterization of Conrad and kind of his isolation and closed offness. So that's really what I got out of that. I got out of that too, that that swim coach is way too nosy. Yeah, he was asking a lot of questions. A lot of questions. I mean, I think the purpose of that, and I think the purpose of every other, like out every character outside of that family's interaction with people in that family is showing that like other people also don't know how to handle what happened to them like they don't they don't know what they're supposed to do which i think is so accurate because it you know the forefront of this movie is this family's experience with grief and how they're dealing with it but you also Mm -hmm. have like this wider community dealing with it too yeah because it's his older brother who died in a boating accident was also a fixture yeah yeah, sorry, spoiler, if you haven't watched the movie by this point, uh, no apologies. But he he was like a valued member of that school community, loved by his parents as well. And and that's really where I, I found it so interesting that he, that fact was just completely beside the point for so much of the movie. And you really did focus in on the people around. But you also sense. still get like a really clear idea of that, which I think, I don't know, it's just, it's very well done. There's a the like big really negative well space well yeah. and you don't know what it is yet. Get a couple more scenes of this tense family dynamic, especially at dinner. Well, there's a really great scene. I think it's shortly after that where you have Mary Tyler Moore, the mom coming home mm-hmm. and walking into the older son's bedroom and just kind of like looking around and like you can you can tell that she's grieving, but she's not crying. You can tell I, Mary Tyler Moore's performance is so good in this because you can tell that Beth is just barely in control. Mm-hmm. She's just barely holding it together the vast majority of the time. And I want to come back to the theme of control in a bit, but you really see it in that scene. And then there's the bit where Conrad comes home and he like startles her. Yeah. And, and she's mad about it. <laughs> that's Her gut reaction is, because she was in this very vulnerable moment, her gut reaction is to be like kind of mad about it. And he's apologetic. And it's this really 
both sweet but also uncomfortable scene of like them interacting together and clearly not quite sure how to interact with each other. And there's the moment where he's like, oh, I got like a 76 on this trig test. And she's like, oh, I was never any good at trig. And then you see Conrad, I think, sees this as like an end to conversation with his mom. Uh And he's like, oh, you took trig? And then I like that she has to think for a moment. She's like, wait, did I take trig? (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, there's stilted delivery and awkwardness they're able to create really effective and they end it with her kind of just saying okay bye now and closing the door (laughs) yeah i don't think that was her line but that was the the effect that i got and so again serving to to really characterize their relationship is strained as at best and really distant yeah i think the introduction to conrad's therapist is probably the next i guess pivotal scene i should say one, I loved how he practiced his introduction. <laughs> I love his therapist. Oh my God, I love that Conrad practices conversations yeah. before he has them. Have you ever done that? 100%. I do that all the time. But in the elevator, like on the way up to... <laughs> it's it's I love great. It. But the, the matter-of-factness and brashness that they interact with, again, is such an interesting foil to how he interacts with his mother. Yeah. Well, his family in general and everyone around him, like I think I think Dr. Berger's directness is exactly what he needs. And it really Mm -hmm. is in contrast to almost every other interaction Conrad's having, even to some degree his dad, which I would argue that his dad is probably the most open and emotionally available to talk Mm -hmm. about what happened. But even there, right. Even there, there's like a strain. So I think burger just being like okay let's just talk about it and like very frankly talks about his suicide attempt Mm -hmm. and i think part of what that does is it creates a safe space for conrad to talk yeah which she doesn't have and to speak very frankly and very emotionally in one of the later scenes he does say something in particular that i i really stuck with me about why he liked being at the hospital more and it's because nobody ever hid anything is the gist of what he said and I thought that was such an interesting, again, just comment on the difference between what he experiences in his, quote, upper middle class upbringing. AKA just the waspiest of waspy Oh my places. goodness. <laughs> it's so waspy. For sure. And I, the, the way this film kind of deals with that theme of the image that we put on and whether or not that is a good or a bad thing, I, I think is super, super fascinating to watch. And yeah. like to, to pivot to some of the holiday party scenes, you get to see it heavily there. Yes, agreed. And I want to and I want to talk about one thing specifically that Conrad brings up in that first session is he says, I want help with control. Yes. Um, Second theme. <laughs> yes. And. I think it's because there's a line later where the dad, Calvin, is talking about how Conrad and Beth are so alike, and clearly Beth deals with grief by being in control. One might call that denial. Right. I mean, but she makes sure she's in control via denial and mm-hmm. putting distance between her and the problem, but it, it is an effort to keep control. For sure. Well, and her comments around wanting to go to London for Christmas and later in the film going away to Houston and literally running away is her way of controlling the situation. So exactly. I completely agree. So I like that that comes up early on. And then I like Berger being like, I'm not a fan of control. That's clearly not working for Conrad. Mm-hmm. And I and I also want to point out that the reason Conrad wants to be in control is because he wants to do it for other people. Because he senses that he's not, quote unquote, fun to be around right now. Yeah. But I do I do think it's interesting that he can't seem to recognize that that tense control with the visible undercurrent of a whirl of emotions is more off-putting than just showing emotions. <laughs> well, Ian, it's because emotions are scary. Oh yeah, as, Dr. As Berger, Berger has a plainly yeah. states, and I loved that port part in that session where he's like, "Emotions are scary, but like you have them, so you might as well let them go. Like you can't, you can't just keep it bottled up." And I, mm-hmm. I loved that because emotions are scary, and I think that's why Beth is so determined to be in control of hers. 
as I think she's terrified of her own emotions. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with you. And I think the dad is too, to a lesser degree, but then he kind of deals with them later. I definitely see Calvin as much more outwardly emotive. Yeah. I, And it's almost like there's a, a genuineness to him that you don't get from Beth. And a testament to Mary Tyler Moore's performance yeah. to be able to, to really put that out there. It's hard. I think it's probably so hard to portray a character that is so internal. Mm-hmm. And she does an amazing job at it. Oh, yes. So to kind of continue with these themes of like control and again, the the image that you put on, the holiday party really stood out to me. Yeah. And so they drive up to this house. They don't really care to be there. They've mentioned that multiple times, which I thought was a funny aside of it's like, oh no, not the Murrays. <laughs> but like, it's so relatable too. Like, haven't you it ever, because, and I know you're an introvert. I'm more extroverted, but even I've like made social commitments before that I'm like, oh God, I really don't want to do this. But like I said, I do it. Yep. So I got to go do it. And most of the time I end up like having fun and I'm happy I did it. But We've, we've been there. <laughs> no, I, I that's I loved that aside because it, it was really relatable. But the party immediately it's it's a very fancy house. They have a maid who's like taking the present away. But the way that they quick cut to a whole bunch of different banal conversation. <laughs> They're the worst. They have the worst friends, Ian. But again, it's that image that you put on at parties because it's like, let me have my interesting party discussion. And <laughs> it, quote it's, unquote, interesting. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, I, it's so funny too, because I know that the, all of those conversations are written in the way to be the most boring conversations <laughs> ever. And the people who are like having the conversation and delivering those lines are all so deadpan and like not at all intriguing. I know it's purposely done to be mm-hmm. like this family so struggling and look at like how boring to a point of almost torturous just yep. regular things are for them. Yeah. Well, and we we do pivot to a scene where Calvin's talking to the host and starting to be more candid and actually open up and talk about the He's fact that He's had a couple that, of drinks. Mhm. Which it's a sticking point, but he, he's trying to be open with the host about like, oh, you know, things are pretty good. Still, you know, Conrad seeing a doctor, all that fun mm-hmm. stuff. So like opening the door just a smidge in to try and kind of what I view is connect with the host and have a substantive conversation that isn't about the 4,000 shares that you bought at one thirteen and a quarter. Oh That's a God. separate conversation, but it that was the like vein of all of the small talk. But Beth overhears, and again with the control, is pissed that he is airing the family's dirty laundry at a party. Well, and she has a talk with him in the car. And I there's a scene later that I definitely want to dissect where I think Beth carries some of that old school stigma around like seeing a therapist. Oh yeah. But Beth's kind of blows up in the car where she's like, You don't you don't talk about like like that's private. Like the stuff that's going on with our family is private. Mm-hmm. The way she's going to deal with these things, Ian, is she's going to deal with them privately. It's nobody else's business. Yeah, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I kind of, I'm trying. This movie made me think a lot about how, like, I deal with things, mm-hmm. and like, especially like the ways I've dealt with like sadder or harder things that have happened in life. And I'm not a full Beth. And I'm not a full Calvin, <laughs> but I feel like I'm somewhere in between. That's fair. Yeah. And that's probably relatively like I, I healthy. Get not like, like <laughs> to cry in front of people. I feel like oh, Beth, yeah. Beth does not ever cry in front of somebody. Oh, no, not at the funeral, which yeah. was brought up. But I, it is interesting, though, that this, and maybe I'm stretching a little too far here, but it almost feels like the way that she wants to deal with the problem in the way that she's characterized is kind of a condemnation of the solidity of the nuclear family. And like you rely on just the people in your immediate sphere for everything because it it doesn't feel like they have very strong connections, even with their friends, even the friends they go visit in Houston, which maybe a little bit more. It feels a little surface level. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like I, it seems like Calvin and Beth have always leaned 
kind of just on each other Mm -hmm. for emotional support. So when they're dealing with arguably the most traumatic things that could happen to parents, suddenly they're both dealing with that and just that one other person is not enough support when that other person is also dealing with the most traumatic thing they'll probably ever experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think Beth's journal journey is really kind of the the last one that we really truly see. Cause the way the movie kind of worked through is we kind of started with Conrad and then we kind of wove in Calvin and then finally really got to see a lot of Beth. So should we just kind of summarize what each of their journeys are? Yeah, I do. I do like that a lot. Let's let's, I think we should talk about Conrad first because I feel like his, his emotional arc. And I will say the one thing about this movie that I'm, unsure on is I did feel like it ended kind of in the middle of a lot of people's emotional arcs. I didn't feel like I got to see the end of their arc, which I think is intentional. And I think a case can be made for it, but which I found a little bit unsatisfying personally. Oh, see, I I saw it as the like end of everything happening, but interesting, interesting, in a different way. But I would say that I think Conrad's arc is the most complete. Mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. So we talked about him starting in therapy and beginning to open up a little bit. The therapy sessions are like, how is there so much good acting? It's just glorious. Judd Hirsch is so good. (laughs) It's just Uh, so good. The two of them together are so good. And it's basically Berger slowly getting Conrad to open up. And then there's the moments of like him expressing emotion. Like Mm -hmm. there's him at one point Conrad's like, I, I don't like like what you're saying or something. And he's like, okay, so you're mad. And Conrad's like, I'm not mad. And he's like, why not? Tell me to fuck off. Like, just tell me to fuck and off. And Conrad finally does, which was such but a I breakthrough. Like, I like that at first he can't, like he can't yeah. even finish the phrase fuck <laughs> off, but he finally gets there. And it's, I think just a moment, a moment for him to be able to be like, you can express negative emotion. Mm-hmm. And you probably should. <laughs> Don't let it be bottled up. I, yeah. I agree. So he, he has that journey with his psychiatrist. They also juxtapose that with a, a storyline with one of his class. Well, his one friend from the hospital and one of his classmates, Janine. Mm-hmm. And then they sprinkle in kind of like him quitting the swim team. There's mm-hmm. the bits where like there's this one kid who he punches and gets into a physical fight. Although that kid earned every fucking punch Conrad gave him. I was like, I, I approve of this fight. I'm down with this, but you have the guy who used to be his best friend and who we find out was also best friends with his brother Mm -hmm. who like reaches out to him and is like, I also feel, feel lonely. Like I also Mm -hmm. feel loss. And then Conrad kind of pulling a Beth and being like, it's too I'm sorry, it's just too painful to be around you. Yeah. Like, I think- Because you remember all the good times. That's Conrad kind of doing to his best friend what Beth does to Conrad. I'd agree. Well, and again, like mother, like son. So, but what I love about, as you mentioned, quitting the swim team, the outbursts, is that really is showing that transformation of him really trying to hold everything in control and like leaning more into his emotions. Maybe not in the most healthy of ways when he like goes and- punches the dude who had it coming right. regardless it's it it's progress and it's also him finding himself i think right because at the beginning you get a very strong feeling that like conrad doesn't really know who he is mm-hmm. like he he's having an identity crisis i'd agree and i they really explore that with how he goes about going out with janine so yeah. even even the way he he practices all of his stuff to get up the like courage to call her to oh ask God. her out him practicing the f- like the phone call and practice like trying to make his voice deeper and everything and oh. then when they finally talk on the phone it's so cute it is and he he fumbles and fumbles and fumbles and janine finally is like that was dumb start over <laughs> Well, she says something, too, that I think she's also like, that was dumb. Uh, Major Manic Pixie Dream Girl vibes from Janine. Yeah, because she kind of just pops up out of nowhere and is like, you're a great tenor. And then they have to fix the main male character. We know nothing about her and her ambitions. And she's kind of weird. She talks about how she's a funny bowler. Although Elizabeth McGovern's physical comedy at the bowling alley is very good. (laughs) 
So I, I do, I do agree with your read of that particular role. Um, their banter is really cute. I will say a lot of the writing felt very adult as in like what 18 year old says this shit. So I, that was like my I don't only know. I think teenagers can be, I think like eight, 18 year olds can be very eloquent and introspective. Not all the time. Yeah. But we're just... 29 and we're not <laughs> eloquent and introspective <laughs> all, the, all the time. Yeah, that's fair. I, I don't disagree that they can be eloquent at times. This just felt Sorkin-esque in its like excessiveness. I'll give you that. So <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, I do want to talk about the fact that she like asks him about his suicide at dinner during a first date. So questionable approach, but also an interesting contra- contrast to how everyone else was treating him. Yeah, I was torn on that because I was like, in reality, like you wouldn't fucking do that. But like, also, it seems like Conrad needs to talk to somebody yeah and she was trying to be that again interrupted which that was whole thing. <laughs> by his asshole friends yeah and then she's like laughing and then there's the car ride home where you can tell he's kind of upset that like she mm-hmm. sort of wasn't taking their conversation seriously or it didn't seem like she was and mm-hmm. then she explains to him she was like okay she's like but like it was really embarrassing when your friends came in and then they were like singing and then they like pulled me out of the booth and like put the McDonald's hat on my head. She's like, I was embarrassed and I laugh when I'm embarrassed. Like, But the way that she got there was, I, I loved. So they, they left the car ride really awkwardly and she did say like, I want you to call me, please call me. Yeah. I like, I like that both of them are very upfront with each other about like, I like you. Mm-hmm. Like, they're very, very upfront and vocal about it, which I think is really nice to see. And I think it's something that both those characters need. Yeah. And that was going to kind of feed into the point about them being so much more open with each other in a way that every single other relationship you see on the screen is not. So, again, we don't know anything about Janine. So it's a one-way situation. But I see what they're trying to do there. Yeah. Agreed. Now, I do want to delve in really fast into, like, Conrad's crisis moment. So we had been... We should talk about Karen. Yes, exactly. Yes, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Karen. So friend friend of Conrad's from the hospital, they meet for lunch. And this was such an interesting interaction. Because you can very clearly tell that they are having... uh, They they have some uh, history... Dinah Manoff, who plays Karen, she's uh, Marty and Grace, I found out. I was like, that, oh, really? that actress looks so familiar. <laughs> I think she's fantastic. Oh, I, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Because throughout the entire interaction, it's, it's similar to how Beth has this kind of facade of everything is all right. It reminded so me more Karen. of his dad with like the forced optimism. Exactly. So it's like a different take on it, but yeah. still that. Like, everything's not okay, but we're going to have the best month and the best year. Well, it's it's a very interesting conversation because she doesn't want to talk. Again, it's kind of like the, the Beth, I don't want to talk about it with the, like, Calvin emotional overcompensation mm-hmm. where she's like, I think Conrad says something like, do you sometimes miss the hospital? And I he wants to talk to Karen because, like, obviously Karen was a friend he made during the darkest time for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and she she gets it. She she lived it. Yes, she's the one who can relate most um, to what he's feeling, and so I think that's why he reaches out for her because he's like, if anyone can talk to me about this, if anyone can relate to like my conflicting feelings about this, Karen can. And Karen doesn't want to talk about the hospital. She's like, you know what? I'm I'm happy now. Like I'm doing great. He men- asks if she's like seeing a therapist. She's like, no, it wasn't really working for me. Like I. I'm the only one who can make me happy. And then she drops a line that is very telling. And she's like, at least that's what my dad said. Oh, and as Which soon is, as she said all that, I was I like, was red, like red, red flags. Flag. Yep. And the forced optimism on top of the red flags it's, is just like. I think like, it was her saying, <sighs> at least that's what my dad told me. I immediately started to see her optimism differently. Mm-hmm. Because at first I thought it was very genuine. But then you hear that and you're like, wait a second, there's more to this. Um, And the actress plays it amazingly well. Mm -hmm. 
But I do like that when she's like, oh, it wasn't really working for me. And you can see Conrad immediately be like, oh no, maybe it's not going to work for me either because we've already established that Conrad has a hard time with his own identity and he doesn't know what he wants. Like there are multiple times when Berger asks him, like, is that what you want? And he's like, I don't know, is it? And there's even the bit where he's laying outside and like Beth comes to kind of try and interact with him. Mm -hmm. And she's like, it's cold. Do you need a sweater? And he goes, I don't know. Do I? Like, he doesn't know. So then him hearing that, like, it didn't work for Karen, he's like, oh, no, maybe this won't work for me. me." And then she immediately is like, but that doesn't mean it's not going to work for you. Like, just because it didn't (laughs) work for me doesn't mean it's not going to work for you. But I will say her her unwillingness to talk about the hospital to me is another take on that control piece where she's like, I cannot open the floodgates. So it's didn't work for her. Or at least she was told it wasn't working for her. Right. And I'm like, okay, if that therapist didn't work for you, find one that's a good fit. Well, and she, she ends that like, well, the minute he wants to start talking more about like the hospital and like what happened for both of them, she's got to go. And then that's when she ends it with being like, this could be the best month ever. Mm -hmm. It could be like the best year ever. Like we can make it that. And then she leaves. And so we periodically have Conrad wanting to call Karen and talk to Uh Karen. Like he wants to call her and talk to her after his date with Janine, because I think he Mm -hmm. wants, he wants to talk to somebody about this positive emotion and Karen's not there. It's hard to tell if like, she's just not there or if like, her parents are like, maybe it's best that she doesn't talk to him. Like, it's hard. You don't really know what's going on mm-hmm. with Karen. You just know that, like, she's not available to talk for various reasons until. Why is it he calls her that last time? So I think it had to do with him having that interaction with his friends where he punched someone out and needed somebody to talk to about that experience. Because that that was the kind of set of events that immediately preceded him doing it but we come to find out that karen has committed suicide and that is like a tipping point piece of information for conrad understandably right i mean it's it's not only a close friend but it's someone that he sees a reflection of himself in and i feel like it's just it's grief upon grief Mm -hmm. and just like total despair too Because it's like, here was someone who he thought was doing okay, who he thought had recovered. And I imagine that there's a bit of like, if Karen couldn't do it, can Mm -hmm. I do it? Like, is this what's going to happen to me? And so he immediately needs to see Berger and Berger bless him. It's the way that Timothy Hutton acted this and the way it was filmed and edited and cut together was just so I was in tears. urgent. Oh, same. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, because he has a meltdown. He has a full meltdown. And I like that Burger's like, hold on, I just gotta get in the office. Like, we're gonna get into the office because mm-hmm. that is that is his safe place. That is the place that has been established for Conrad that it's okay to feel his feelings mm-hmm. um, and Berger just letting him have a meltdown and just assuring him that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And being like, I, I am your friend. That was the thing that got me. And then they hug and, uh, I'm, and, I'm going to tear up see now. Conrad, I think I, this, I think this is the first time that Conrad cries in front of somebody. Cause there's a, mm-hmm. a scene earlier where he's in his room crying and his it's after he's had a fight with his mom, like a really big blowout fight with his mom. And Con- Conrad is carrying so much guilt for so many different things in this movie. Mm-hmm. A lot of cent- a lot of it centering around his his brother. But there's a scene there's a scene where the dad comes to check on him and he's clearly crying, but he's got his arm over his eyes like he doesn't want people to see. Yeah. It's like I'm tired. I'm fine. I j- leave. Yeah. No, I, 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 that's a really interesting point. I think this was the first time we really got the full picture of what happened with his older brother as well with the sailing accident. So it's, uh, the, the role play that Berger gets into about like when, um, Conrad asks, why did you let go? And he yells back because I was tired. That hit me. Like, I there's ugh. oh god yeah well because we find out that they were sailing out on the lake the weather got bad they should have turned back 
They didn't. Buck was telling Conrad to like keep the sales steady, and Conrad is devastated that he lost his brother that he clearly looked up to. Mm-hmm. But he also is mad at his brother because he was like, why did you put that on me? And then yeah. the boat flips. They are both in the storm, in the water, holding each other's hand over the top of the boat. And his brother sitting there saying, don't let go, don't let go. And his brother is the one who lets go. And Conrad's like, why didn't you let go? Or why did you let go? Why did yeah. you let go? And I love Berger's line. Oh, let me find it. I think it was because I was tired. It was because I was tired. But then he, once uh, Conrad settled down a little bit, uh, Berger says, did it ever occur to you that you might have been stronger? Uh, if there's one scene, you got to watch a whole movie to get to this scene. But this scene was. Uh, incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it was between the content, like the actual writing and the way it was delivered by both people in that scene, I just, it, that, that is like the pinnacle of this movie for me. The writing's amazing because it is unpacking layers of incredibly complex feelings, mm-hmm. but doing it so well. So well. <laughs> oh, but I, I love that scene. And that is, I think, the start of Conrad's recovery. And him starting to look at himself and like the world a different way. I'd agree. And forgiving himself and forgiving his brother. Mm-hmm. And and you can really tell that the movie pivots at that point to focus more on the parents yeah. as well. So it's like, it, it's not, Conrad is not wrapped up in a pretty little bow. He's still got no. some ways to go, some grief to work through. But do we want to pivot to the parents now? So we Let's pivot to the parents. Do we want to talk them concurrently or do we want to talk... I feel like concurrently, they're kind of, they're not quite attached at the hip, but their journey is a lot more intertwined. They have, they, I feel like they have the same beats, but go in divergent paths. Yeah, I'd agree. Well, and that's why the movie ends yeah. the way it does. But we left him at the the fight at from the holiday party where Calvin is trying to talk a little bit more openly. But we get some additional characterization of Beth as we move a little bit further, especially in the camera scene where they're trying to take family yes, photos at her parents' house. She, she can't, Oh God, Mary Tyler Moore and Timothy Hutton are both so good in this scene where like they physically put Calvin between them. And then there's a bit where like Calvin's like, well, let's get a picture of Beth and uh, Conrad together because Calvin's solution to the two of them clearly having issues is to force them together, which is not a good idea. And Beth, Beth will not, Beth will not touch Conrad. Yeah, I noticed that. And that was, she physically cannot bring herself to touch him. And I feel like at that point we've had Beth like try and do a couple things, but she mm-hmm. feels like it's not working and she feels like Conrad's rejecting them. They had that conversation out in the backyard where they just yelled past each other about Buck and all of that. And th- there were multiple scenes where they literally were just talking past one another and it's yeah. clear they're not connecting. So yeah, that's and I feel sure. like they've, I feel like both of them have tried to connect with the mm-hmm. other one, but unsuccessfully because they're trying to connect mm-hmm. in sort of clashing ways like one because there's um anyone who's familiar with like love languages which i find extremely interesting and stuff you know everyone has their own love language but there's it's not just the way you receive love it's also the way you give love Mm -hmm. and i feel like both of them give and receive love in extremely different ways and both of them do not like the way the other person does it yeah so they just don't connect. And I do think I, I'm debating whether Calvin is in denial, which would be an interesting read, or he just doesn't see the tension. I think it's a little bit of both, right? Like it's probably he sees that they're not getting along and he doesn't under, but he doesn't see the depth of it. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily understand why. And then I think it's also his like forced cheerfulness. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the scene, although I have to say, uh, Conrad finally like blows up in the scene with the camera where he's like, just cause Beth is like, 
instead of taking the picture with Conrad, she's being like, oh, let me take a picture of the three men together. Like, let me get a picture of the th- you guys. Whereas Calvin's insisting that she take the picture with her son. And then you have the grandparents just prattling in the background. And Conrad finally blows up and is like, just give her the goddamn camera, which everyone's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, this is awkward, but we shouldn't talk about this. But frankly, I... I would have blown up so much sooner not having gone through all of the trauma that that family has gone through. Like that convert, Mm. it was such an annoying situation, (laughs) but it built the tension so well. It did. And the conversation in the kitchen afterwards with Beth and her mother. Okay. There's a couple scenes where the, uh, the grandmother kind of features in here. And then when Conrad's staying with them, when Beth and Calvin go to Texas Mm -hmm. and they're fairly short but I feel like they are so effective at giving us an understanding of why Beth is the way she is. Because I think Beth is a very tough character who could be very one-dimensional and Mm -hmm. extremely, like, unsympathetic. And I'm sure she's probably, like, she's definitely not the most sympathetic character in this movie, and I think there are definitely some people out there who probably really don't like that character. Mm -hmm. But I think by having us kind of understand why she is the way she is, I think the movie is able to take a more nuanced care, like take on that character and make her seem very human. Mm -hmm. And that's what we get in the scene. Cause you see as they're discussing as in, um, sorry, as Beth and Beth's mother are discussing Conrad, the walls going up when that things start talking about, therapy and all and, of like, that the grandmother's like i thought we were done with all that and she's like well apparently not like you, you're and starting the to diversion see like oh, back to is... the broken plate like it, yes. it's such a denial situation yes you're like i understand why you're like this is why beth cares about image mm-hmm. so much like this is how she was raised yep so it's having that motivation and understanding of her character does lend a more sympathetic view of her overall because yeah. yes you can can work to change certain things but like you, you can't really change all of you. So well, like you're always going to have that like of, urge. <laughs> speaking of change, as Calvin and Beth's relationship starts to deteriorate, although there is a moment where Calvin, so Calvin actually goes to see Berger mm-hmm. and he's kind of like, I'm going to shed some light on Conrad. And he kind of explains the whole, like Beth and Conrad don't really get along. And people always thought that like, Beth and Buck were so alike, but that's not the case. Like Conrad and Beth are so alike. And I feel like that's why they have trouble connecting. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about like, I I think he starts to doubt that Beth like loves him and loves Conrad. And I think it's because again, the way that he and Beth grieve are very differently in the way that they show love is very different. But he talks about like Buck and Beth had a very special bond. And then he Mm -hmm. realizes that like he needs to talk to Berger too. And then he comes home and him insisting on like talking to Beth about like, why did you care what I wore to the funeral? And Beth not wanting to talk about it, but him insisting on talking about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because as like a partner in the relationship, he can do that. Whereas I think Conrad insisting that he talks about it, like there's a, there's a power dynamic there. Yeah. As like a parent child that is, obviously very different from like a power dynamic between two spouses, which is going to be much more equal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Him being like, I was wearing a blue shirt and you insisted I wear a white shirt and like different shoes. Like, why did that matter? Why did you care? Mm -hmm. And then him crying and Beth going to comfort him. I, okay. So that reminded me so much actually of a real life thing that, happened when my grandfather died uh, several years ago. I remember I was in college at the time and I remember Mm -hmm. my mom calling me to like give me the news and to just like figure out logistics about like how I was going to get there and all that stuff. And I remember her telling me over the phone, she was like, remember, you don't have to wear all black. I like that. I took that at the time, like my interpretation of that was like, my mom is very upset about this. And she wants some color <laughs> to make her happy. So then yeah. what happened was I borrowed my roommate's bright blue shoes, like her bright blue heels mm-hmm. for the visitation. And then my entire extended family made fun of my shoes. 
So that's what happened. It was kind of funny. Well, the end. But I was like, I did this for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) But that conversation about like, it's those, like sometimes that's how people cope. Mm -hmm. And that's how Beth coped was being like, well, let's focus on the things we can control. Yeah. So that scene you did just mention, that happened after their trip to Houston, right? No, that's before. Houston's oh, the breaking point for Houston's those two, I think. interesting. So I love the set of Houston scenes. Well, first, first, can we talk about there is the bit where um, that I was trying to transition into, and then I got very off topic. But <laughs> quote unquote, speaking of change, there's the lunch with Beth and Calvin where he says that I think it'd be a good idea if we all, like, as a family, went to see Doctor Berger. Mm-hmm. And the reason she doesn't want to go is because she's like, I don't want to be changed. I've had enough change. And so she's like super digging in her heels. Yeah. And that that is such an interesting take. And again, a comment on the control piece, which I don't think Berger wants to change her. No, but that's how she's digging in. Yeah. And you can't argue with that, can you? Like that that is a, a, the way of saying absolutely not without saying absolutely not. Well, it's like fake it till you make it, right? Like if you pretend everything's fine, then eventually everything will be fine. Yeah, I don't put stock in that. No, that's uh, not that's not really how it works. But that's how Beth thinks it works. Yeah. So that is a that is a really good point because that is for sure kind of showing how they are starting to have more tension yep. in the relationship. And and like you said, Houston is that breaking point. I love how at the beginning though it is this adventure and they're landing in Houston and they have the headsets on and they're happy and excited and it it and starts on this really great high note. Well, it's this idea, like, you know, Beth was like, we need to get away. It'll be good for us. And she's mm-hmm. not wrong. Her reasons are just questionable. Well, she's, <laughs> she's not, again, she's not wrong. But you also have to do the emotional work. You also have to do the yeah. hard work. You don't get to just run away. Right. And because it will find you. Yes. Like, running away and taking a break are two different things. Oh, totally agree. And so it feels like the first scene in Dallas was kind of the the taking a break. And then it becomes really clear in the second scene where they start talking more long-term and about, oh, what if we do this again and do a golf-focused thing and all that? And Calvin brings up their child, Conrad, because why would you vacation without your kid? If if that's your style, go for it. But it's very clear Calvin like values Conrad and like wants him involved. Well, I think at the, I think at this point just interacting with Conrad has become too painful for Beth. And mm-hmm. I, she's not doing the, doing the emotional work to figure out why and to get over that. I think she's extremely scared of being too close to him. This mm-hmm. was, this was my read on the character is that Beth isn't, is terrified by her own emotions. And we get the flashback of like bits of the night where Conrad tried to commit suicide and Mm -hmm. Calvin like banging on the door to his room, him being loaded into an ambulance and you see Beth's face and just Mm -hmm. how like horrified she is. And I think that a huge part of it is that she's obviously really grieving after Buck, who she was very close to, but I Mm -hmm. think she's also mad at Conrad because she almost lost both of her children. Yeah. Well, and that, that comes up in the Conrad therapy scenes yeah. as well. Like, it, Yeah, I, so I, I, get I it. think she's mad at him because of that, and he's a reminder of the kid she lost, too. Yeah. And that's why she she needs, she she needs her solution is to escape. She can't escape if Conrad's there because Conrad is the reminder. Mm-hmm. And I love the sets of lines that in the second scene when she and Calvin are fighting that she says to their friends. At like, the golf course? Because this is the first time she cracks and... Public. This is the first time she cracks in public. And I love that it's on a golf course where you're supposed to be quiet. I mean, it's it's pretty great. But but her her comments about like don't talk to me about happiness until until you know your child is safe and not drowning in that pool that you really love and like going through all of these nightmare like, don't scenarios you dare for any Tell parent. me how to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. That's the first time we see I think we've gotten glimpses up to that point at like how the events prior to the start of this movie have affected Mm -hmm. Beth. But I think that is the first time we really see how traumatized she also has been. Mm -hmm. And bookending the Houston trip with that really somber plane ride where Beth is doing her typical, like I'm just doing my deal, but you see Calvin in the background kind of pensive out the window, turn around and look with, 
what I read is kind of sorrow in his eyes at Beth is just like, oh shit, things have really changed. Yeah. Like really changed. And then we have the scene where they're home. By the way, all of the, like Conrad's, like the news of Karen dying, Conrad's meltdown slash breakthrough has all happened while they were gone. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and there's the scene in the living room where Conrad like says goodnight and he like thanks Beth for making dinner and is like, it's Mm -hmm. really good. And he hugs her and her, her physical reaction. reaction. Oh my gosh. Of like, she kind of doesn't know what to do. And then also Calvin watching that and just realizing that like, this is not getting better. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the first time Calvin really sees like how much their relationship has deteriorated. But that leads right into the scene where Calvin is up at the kitchen table late at night and Beth comes down to find him. And this interaction was, a. it didn't necessarily make me cry, but it did make me feel very sad and very deeply. Yeah. Because Calvin's speech about how basically Beth has changed in his eyes is just so sad. And her response is, I feel the same way I always have about you, which is like such a devastating response to someone asking if you love them. Like, yeah, yeah. Her, her not being able to say, I love you is tough. I do think that some of Calvin's speech is a little selfish. Like I, like, I don't know. Like you see him also, like he's kind of like, you've changed but like also he has too. like there were parts of his speech that I was like, I feel like you could do more. But then also that's extremely realistic, right? Mm-hmm. Like he did push a lot onto her without acknowledging anything from his side where it probably they probably need to meet in the middle and neither side made moves to meet in the middle. Right. But then also I get the like Calvin's like, we need to talk about this. And she's like, I can't talk about this. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's it. I feel like where the conversation ends is less of a like you're doing this wrong and more like a we're not working anymore. Yeah. And when Calvin says, I'm not like, I don't know if I love you anymore. Best reaction. Oh my God. Mary Tyler Moore mind blown at this performance. She so calmly goes upstairs to get her suitcase out of the closet to pack her suitcase and then finally has a moment where she like starts to break down and cry, but reins herself back in. Yeah. And then it's just the next morning we see the taxi cab leave. Conrad sees the Mm -hmm. taxi cab leave out the window. Okay. Before we get too much further, I do want to say her going up the stairs happens in utter silence. And that is one thing we haven't touched too terrible too much on in this movie but the silence in some of these extremely emotional scenes especially with beth is masterful and truly deafening silence yeah yeah and it's it's again adding into the the idea that silence is still important so i don't know a lot of the more recent movies that i've watched as in like more modern there's just always noise. And so I love when there's like, like this absence and it's used well. Knowing knowing when it should be quiet is so important so yeah. much of the time. So next morning, Conrad walks out to see his dad in the backyard. And again, we have something kind of interesting here. Calvin's not going to actually talk about Beth leaving. Like Conrad has to ask. And I think we've mm-hmm. seen Conrad grow so that now he's the one who's done the most work and can like maybe help his parents, especially Calvin and him asking Calvin and Calvin just being like, uh, your mom's going to go away to Houston for a while. And I like what he, when Conrad's kind of like, why or like what happened? And then he's like, Conrad starts to once again, put it on himself and say it's his fault. And I love Calvin's response of it's nobody's fault. Sometimes stuff just happens. And he gets angry about it and shows that emotion to Conrad. And that sparks the discussion of like, you should show emotion more. So it, yeah. it it's just this beautiful culmination of, well, maybe not culmination, but it, it shows like all of these little motifs that we've had in the rest of the film, like coming to a productive 
exchange. Yeah, and then they hug, um, and that's and where say the I film love you ends. Pachelbel's cannon comes back. Um, Did you notice that Pachelbel's cannon started with uh, Beth when she was packing a bag, but yeah. stopped? Yep. So good. It's it's so well done. Um, this was the one bit where I, I I fully understand why it ended there, and I I can fully understand if people are like, no, this was the perfect ending. I felt like we were still. I felt Conrad's story was the most complete but i i don't know i felt like calvin and beth's character arcs weren't complete but then like i said i also can see there being an argument for that i kind of would have liked a scene with beth and Berger, mostly just because i want to see those two actors do a scene together um but i think that could have been a very interesting addition yeah i the way that i viewed it is the parents are not going to change their ways. And I, I viewed this kind of in the same way I viewed Kramer versus Kramer, where it's like, this is going to suck, but this is the best and most peaceful resolution to Beth and Calvin's relationship. Yeah, but there was something about Kramer versus Kramer, even though I like I would not call Kramer versus Kramer a typical happy ending, but it felt extremely satisfying. Like that ending felt more satisfying to me and more complete than mm-hmm. this one did. Um, but I think that's just more, but like, I, it's hard for me to nail down exactly why. And I think that's just more of a personal preference. Like I can't, I can't say the ending was bad. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for lists? Yes, I am ready for lists. Okay. So I am slotting ordinary people in at number 18. So again, we've done 53 of these. So that's pretty high. The only, so it'd be after the sound of music and before best years of our lives. Okay. And I the reason it's above best years of our lives is because it's definitely paced better. There were bits of best years of our lives that I think could have been trimmed. And then I think just overall performances are a little bit better in ordinary people and like the script is tighter. Um it's after Sound of Music because Sound of Music is pretty much flawless. <laughs> I like there's nothing bad about it. Okay, it's a little bit long, but it's a delight. <laughs> okay, I would take out Climb Every Mountain. That's like my one beef with Sound of Music. But I, the only reason it's even as like as low as 18, I think, is because pretty much everything I have above it, I either have watched more than once or would watch more than once and would watch again. Ordinary or like would show somebody else like like one of our friend movie nights. If someone was like, Maggie, pick the movie, which mm-hmm. I often get to, you know, humble brag right there. I don't think I would pick ordinary people. It is it, not it a was fun movie. It's not a fun movie, but it is exceptionally good. Um, yeah. So that's really kind of the only reason it's even that low. Like it was, it was spectacular. You know, that, that is very fair. And I think I'm also getting to the point where I'm having to use the Ian would watch this again test. <laughs> I don't think it's slotted exactly in, in with the same way that you did, but I, it's my new number 14. So I did put it a little bit higher um, than you. And that is in between Tom Jones at 13 and one flew over the cuckoo's nest at 15. Fun fact. Tom Jones is also my number 13. Yes. Such a but, perfect. Uh, here's, uh, here's the funny thing though. But even if we talk about like would watch again, that test, I'm so inconsistent with it because of everything on my list. Tom Jones is the one I have recommended to the most people <laughs> and who, and that I have made multiple friends just watch. And it's 13 and it's 13. <laughs> So I Okay, but Tom Jones is also not a flawless movie. So No, it's not. That's, that's very yeah. true. It's just the one that no one's ever heard of that I'm like, we have to watch this. Sleeper hit. No, yeah. I totally get that. But honestly, that that sort of situation where you're like, you must watch this movie is why it beat out ordinary people. So I, I, I thought Tom Jones was much more inventive, much more fun, did have its flaws. And the performances, I would say for a comedic role were outstanding, but like, how do you really compare this family drama from an, an acting perspective? Like it's Mary funny. Tyler Moore is so much better than everybody in who Tom Jones. But Let me think about who, let me look up who beat her for best. I actress. know it's insane. It was Sissy Spacek and Cole Miner's daughter. I haven't seen that, but I have heard that it is great. And that Sissy Spacek is really, really good. Hmm. I might have to watch that one's about Loretta Lynn, right? Yeah. I might have to watch that, but that, that's really why, again, all that, just Tom Jones is, is a delight. Um, I'm going to use it for that movie and I'm going to use it for, it happened one night, so deal with it. But I do have it over one flew over the cuckoo's nest because I think for me, the performances were 
like head and shoulders above One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And that's not to say folks like Jack Nicholson weren't good in One Flew, but this has just such a control about it, which <laughs> see what I did there, yeah. um, especially with Mary Tyler Moore and uh, Timothy Hutton that just it, it's astounding. And I think the editing, too, was a lot better. I would agree with that. Yeah, those are those are interesting comparisons because I do have One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest several places higher than this. Mm hmm. That's a tough comparison because I, I would say One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest relies more on more extreme characters. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a um, not necessarily unrealistic, but there's there's like a heightened nature to those characters, especially McMurphy and Ratchet. Yeah. Whereas ordinary people are extremely, extremely realistic characters. Like I, again, like Mm -hmm. I said, this movie made me think a lot about like how I process emotion and grief and stuff like that. And there were bits of every character that I like recognized something that I had felt in or like recognized something that I had seen a friend experience. It's more relatable than, than one flew of the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's dealing, it's dealing with stuff, you know, to a certain level, like not, thankfully not everyone's lost a child, but like everybody for the most part has lost someone. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very relatable subject matter. For sure. And I I do want to say that the character of Nurse Ratched and Louise Fletcher's performance in that definitely, well, it's not that she echoed Mary Tyler Moore's performance. They're both very internalized characters. I think you have have characters that are very external in how they process the world and how they show emotion and how they interact with other people. And then there are characters that are very internal about it. Mm-hmm. And same, same is true for like real people. And what I mean to say there is I, I do not want to discount Louise Fletcher's performance in any way, shape or form. Cause she did amazing things with that character, but Mary Tyler Moore did too. So yeah, well, and it's <laughs> so interesting too, because Mary Tyler Moore, obviously most well known as Laura Petrie in the Dick Van Dyke show and as Mary Tyler, or was it Mary Richards in the Mary Tyler Moore show, both of whom were kind of sort of, they're fictional characters, but they're also like kind of reflections of her personality or of mm-hmm. like her public persona. Whereas the character of Beth Jarrett is very removed from her public persona. Oh, yeah. And I, I kind of like that it's Mary Tyler Moore going like, Yes, I'm a big star. Yes, you know me for like a certain type of role, but um, Watch hold me on flex. to your hat. Look how amazing I am. <laughs> yes. Anyway, it's my number 14. Nice. What are we doing next time, Ian? Next is Chariots of Fire. It's another British historical drama film. Mm, so It's about people running, isn't it? Running in slow motion. Uh, yes. Very slow music plays behind that. That's... That's what I know of that movie. We'll see. That'll mm, that'll be interesting. But yeah, join us next time for Chariots of Fire. Until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Best Pictures Pod on both. I think we tend to be a little bit more active on Twitter, so that's a good place to reach out to us. Um, if you have a more long-form way you want to reach out to us, uh, email us in at bestpicturespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to our episode on Ordinary People um, and join us next time for Chariots of Fire.